being blind. Sightless. Legally blind. Visually impaired. Blindness. How will society accept us? Visually challenged. Do you see what I see? What is beyond there? Why don't they understand me? What if I fall? How is it to be blind? Does anyone care? How about you? Do you care? Learn more in our workshop and seminar, Coping with Visual Loss. You are in for a good seminar this afternoon. We have a lineup of guest speakers for you who will discuss various topics that we hope you will gain information and resources from that you can take with you. Whether you are new to your blindness or have been coping with your blindness for some time, or you are here with a family member or a friend experiencing vision loss, our goal today is to share information and resources that hopefully could answer some questions and help you as you go along with your journey. We will also have um, some short skits uh, based on scenarios that we as blind and low vision individuals um, encounter regularly. So if you are all ready, we are. Um, by the way, my name is Raquel Desipira. I am a member of the San Fernando Valley Chapter of the National Federation of the Blind of California. I am the chairperson of four committees in our chapter, um, the Membership Building Committee, Seminar and Events Planning Committee, Sports and Activities, and the Best in Tech Planning Committee. I am also involved with the Audio Internet Reading Service of Los Angeles. I am a member of the Board of Directors and the Secretary of AirCLA. AirCLA is a nonprofit organization that records a wide variety of podcasts for people with low vision and dyslexia. We have a large variety of podcasts read by professional voice artists on your computer, your iPhone, your Android phones, and mobile devices for free. Um, 
Samples of materials we read are well-known magazines such as Oprah, People Magazine, and Sports Illustrated. We also have podcasts about the latest technology and recent medical research and seminars such as these. And uh, also, Ersole is recording our uh, seminar today, so thank you very much, Ersole. I am also uh, the vice president and co-founder of a startup nonprofit organization called Hearts for Sight Foundation, where our mission is to provide superior nutrition, adaptive fitness, and occupational development services for the blind and visually impaired community, including those with diabetes. Hearts for Sight will focus on the importance of self-development through education and on health and wellness, thus preventing or controlling um, diseases like diabetes, one of the leading causes of blindness. At Hearts for Sight, um, we want our clients to understand the commitment and dedication to self-prosperity which will directly result in the qualities needed to become successfully employed and independent. So now, you may be asking yourself, why is she involved with that many organizations providing services for the blind? And how did she become involved with all of them. I have I have my own journey of coping with vision loss. I have retinitis pigmentosa. In layman's term, it basically means the generation of the retina, where um, as my retinas progressively progressively deteriorate, they do not carry as much light or information to the visual receptors in the brain. So um, night blindness and loss of peripheral vision are the first one usually affected uh, when you have RP. One of our guest speakers uh, for today will talk will tell us more about uh, the various causes of vision loss. Um, so I believe I was four or five years old when I, when I was first diagnosed with this condition. I was able to see when I was younger, but I never really had 20-20 vision. Um, I was able to see well enough to see the uh, blackboard, um, to see colors and shapes, to see uh, people's faces and features, but I always had night blindness. So um, when I was young, I, you know, because I did not understand what, you know, what really my condition was, I always wondered why I cannot when I, why, why I cannot play with my friends as soon as um, darkness falls. 
then I think I was um, I was probably 13 years old when my eye doctor um, told me that my condition is progressive and that eventually I will become totally blind. She actually said um, by the age of 18 I will be totally blind. So I'm sure you can imagine what a teenage girl like me um, felt back then. Um, I went through a period of depression where I kept asking myself, why me? You know, why, why did, what did I do to deserve such fate? Um, what will happen to me now? Uh, questions like, um, who would want a blind girl or a blind woman like me? Um, but you know, there's, the thing is, I, I realized that there's really nothing I can do, so I just had to go on with life. Um, through the years, I met different people going through and have gone through with the same situation. And as I, and as I go through life, I learned different ways of coping, um, coping with my vision loss. I learned alternative ways of doing things, and um, so that's what we are hoping, or that's what we want to share with you today. So let's start with our first guest speaker for today, um, Dr. Bill Takeshita. Dr. Bill Takeshita is um, currently the Chief of Optometry at the Center for the Partially Sighted. Um, he is also an adjunct, adjunct professor at the University of Southern California and the Southern California College of Optometry. Um, I met Dr. Bill when I, when my when my Department of Rehab when my Department of Rehabilitation counselor. Um, sent me to CPS for assistive technology evaluation. Now, try to remember those two terms, um, Department of Rehab and assistive technology, because you will hear, um, you will hear those words again later. So, um, Dr. Bill is one of those people I can say who had helped helped me develop develop into who I am now. Since uh, since I met Dr. Bill, he and I have worked on uh, different organizations and and different events. And um, I can say he is one of those people that pushes me to. Um, pushes me and encouraged me to be the best person I can be and even had uh, pushed me to be the MC today, which I normally do not do. So anyway, um, so Dr. Bill, um, here you go, the, uh, the floor is yours. 
Good afternoon, everybody. It's really a, a very, very tremendous pleasure for me to be asked to speak to all of you today. And many of you might even know me. Um, am, am I any of your eye doctors? All right. <laughs> you know, that's what's really such an interesting thing about this whole experience of, of becoming visually impaired. You see, for me, ever since I was six years old, I wanted to become an eye doctor. At school, they had a vision screening, and the school nurse told me that I needed glasses. And I said, you know, I don't think that I have any problems with my vision. And she said, well, I think you're going to see a lot better after you get these new glasses. And after I was fit with those glasses and I put them on, I just couldn't believe how clear everything was. It was absolutely amazing that I was able to see so far away. And when I went home that day with my glasses, all the kids in the neighborhood were waiting around to play baseball. And when that happened, I finally had my time to bat. And when that ball came, it was so clear, and it was so big, and I swung with all of my might, and I hit my first home run. <laughs> I probably should have been thinking, one day I'm going to become a Los Angeles Dodger, you know? <laughs> but instead, I said, I'm going to be like Dr. Galasso. That was my eye doctor over there in the San Fernando Mall. And through all the years after that, I kept talking about how these glasses were the greatest thing. Even though my friends were always teasing me. When I went to school, my friends would call me four eyes. They would call me toad. They would make every joke about me. But it didn't bother me at all because with those glasses, I could play sports. I could read from the board. And those glasses, they changed my life. You know, I was in the first grade, second grade, third grade. I was not at all interested in what girls thought about me. They could call me whatever they wanted. But those glasses changed my life. And the parents that were around me, they were so encouraging that I wore glasses. I remember I was the only kid in my class who wore glasses. And they said, this is great. And I hear that your grades are getting better. And I hear that one day you're going to become a doctor. And I proudly said, yeah, I think that I will. Now, this was a really interesting thing because my father, my father's brothers, my mom, my mom's brothers and sisters, my grandma and my grandpa, our whole family, we were all gardeners. Every one of us were gardeners. And I said to myself, Gosh, this would be great if I don't have to be a gardener. <laughs> I would love that. So I continued to try my hardest, and eventually I did make it to UCLA, where I then studied to become an eye doctor. How many of you are Bruins out there? Let's give it a good hand. <laughs> I could tell there's not too many Bruins out there, are there? <laughs> But during the time that I was at UCLA, I then said, I am going to volunteer at the world-famous Jules Stein Eye Institute. You know, 
if I could volunteer at the Jules Stein Eye Institute, I'm going to learn more about vision. And when I apply to become an eye doctor, it's going to be easier for me to get in. And at that time, this was in the 1980s, you know, at that time, a lot of you weren't even born. That's how old I am, right? <laughs> but I learned so much about vision at that time. And at that time, it was very interesting because one of the major concerns about vision loss was that people were getting cataracts. You know, a lot of us have heard about a cataract. And the cataract is when the lens that's inside of our eye, it becomes clouded. A lot of times it becomes clouded just because of our age. If we're 60 years old, that lens becomes clouded, and suddenly we can't see very well anymore. For some of us, it causes total blindness. In other cases, it could be that we're in a car accident, or for others that we might have diabetes and we get a cataract. Well, at that time, my grandmother was ready to have cataract surgery, and the things that the doctors were talking about was the fact that they would cut her eye halfway open, they would remove that dirty lens, and they would sew up her eye. She would have to be like that for about a week at the hospital, and then they would fit her with these Coke bottle glasses. And my grandmother says, Coke bottle, nayo. <laughs> <laughs> And what that means is, Coke bottle? No, I don't want that. <laughs> and the doctor at Joel Stein says, well, we do have something that's new, and it's called an intraocular lens implant. This is like a contact lens that we'll put in the eye, and you will be able to see clearly without the Coke bottle glasses. And she said, yes, let's do it. I'm willing to pay whatever I need to pay for that. Because I don't want the Coca bottles, right? <laughs> well, she did have surgery, and it was so successful. And there were so many people in the Japanese community who heard about cataract surgery where you don't have to wear Coke bottle glasses. They were so excited that soon everybody was going to use Sally for that type of surgery. And it, today, we know that people are not really becoming blind because of cataracts anymore. But we now have implant lenses that not only could focus far, but they could focus near. And there's also research now where there's implant lenses that will turn into a sunglass when you're outdoors so that these people who've had cataracts don't have to wear any glasses. I mean, this is amazing. In less than 30 years, we have gone from people wearing Coke bottle glasses to people not even needing to wear anything with cataracts. So this is really, really amazing. Of all the surgeries that are available, of all surgeries available, the surgery that is the most successful surgery in medicine is cataract surgery. You know, that's amazing because it shows what work all of these ophthalmologists and optometrists are doing and what is that benefit. We also see other things that happen, though. People can develop other types of vision loss because of different reasons. Some of you may have been born with a vision impairment. Some of you may have been born with perfectly healthy eyes. But because you were born premature, the blood vessels in your eye were not fully grown. 
And those blood vessels started to bleed and to leak, and it affected your vision. This is a condition called retinopathy of prematurity. But today, we see that there are now children that are born earlier and earlier. Children that are born even before 28 weeks of gestation. And these kids who were normally blind, they now have vision. These are children who we did not believe that these kids would possibly ever even live. And these kids are now living. They're going to school. They're playing video games. And yesterday, I had one child who was born after 23 weeks gestation. 23 weeks gestation. This baby didn't even weigh one pound when this baby was born. And yesterday, I had the privilege to tell her, you know what? Your vision is good enough that you could go and take your driver's test at the DMV. This young lady just started crying. She goes, you're kidding. Are you just playing with my head, Dr. Bill? I said, no, this is the truth. Your vision is good enough that you could go and drive a car. She was crying. Her mother was crying. Her father was crying. The whole room was just sobbing. They were just so happy. She said, Dr. Bill, if I pass that test, I'm going to come. I'm going to take you out. And we're going to go out for In-N-Out Burger. I said, all right. (laughs) But there's other people who are born with other types of eye diseases that are genetic related. Raquel had mentioned that she has a disease that's called retinitis pigmentosa. We see other people may have diseases such as albinism, where they don't have enough color in their eyes, hair, and their skin. Or it could be like a person such as myself. There was nobody, nobody in my entire family who had any kind of vision disorder. But I developed a disease that's called cone raw degeneration. I was in my 18th year of practicing as an eye doctor. And when I was looking in the eye of a young girl and I said, what is that in her eye? That is a strange looking spot. And I moved my eye to look at another part of the eye, and it moved. And I looked at another part of her eye, and it moved again. And then I realized, that's not her eye. That's my eye. I then went to see many, many retina specialists throughout the United States. I didn't see a lot of doctors here in Southern California because I didn't want anybody to know that, quote, Dr. Bill, the chief of low vision at the center for the partially sighted might be low vision. I didn't want people to know that Dr. Bill from the Braille Institute might be going blind. And after I saw all of these doctors across the United States, they all told me, you have a condition that is almost always genetic. We don't know why you have this. And they started asking me more and more and more questions. And it came back down to one thing. My family, we had nurseries and we were gardeners, and my job was to spray insecticides on all of those plants. They gave me the easy job. I didn't have to lift anything heavy. I didn't have to get my hands dirty. I was just a little kid, and I would ride around on these electric carts and just spray the plants. 
But what we didn't know is that those types of insecticides and pesticides can cause genetic mutations. That is what has affected my vision. And as time went on, we started to find out that all kinds of strange things are happening to our family. You know, what is this? My uncle developed Parkinson's disease at the age of 40. He was shaking so much, he couldn't even sit in a chair. Later, my dad developed Parkinson's disease. He was shaking all over the place. My oldest brother developed a rare blood disease, which eventually killed him. And my other brother, he also has the same eye disease that I have. He was recently diagnosed with cone rod degeneration. So the point to this is that things that we consume in our environment can be very dangerous. But there's a lot of great genetic testing that's being done. At Philadelphia Children's Hospital, they did a research study where they found what gene causes these kinds of visual conditions. There's a condition called Lieber's congenital amaurosis. And for all those people who were part of the study, they injected a good gene into their eye. And guess what happened? These kids who were almost totally blind have developed more vision. These kids who could not go trick-or-treating can now go trick-or-treating by themselves. These kids who could not read are now able to read. So the point is, is that the work of the researchers, we now know that if it's a genetic problem, we're going to inject the eye with the healthy gene. And the healthy gene will tell the eye what ingredients to make to give us good vision. We now know that for people who have macular degeneration, that there's a specific vitamin therapy that is very effective in slowing down the loss of vision with MAC degeneration. We also now know that for people who have bleeding in the eye due to diabetes and macular degeneration, we now have medications that could be injected into the eye. And there's an additional new medication that could be injected so that the person doesn't have to have these injections as often. So for me, I want you to know, and I want you to tell anybody that you know who has a vision impairment, that blindness, it is not bad. I am now totally blind. I've been totally blind for about six years now. And I could tell you, I went through what every one of these people on the stage went through. When I had to give up my practice, when I could no longer go to work, when I could no longer help these rock stars and movie stars and other celebrities who had vision problems, I thought that my life was over because the only thing I knew how to do since the age of six was to become an eye doctor. And I sat at home. I sat at home by myself. And I was so angry. I can't call my friends. They're all at work. I can't call other people to come and help me because I have told other people, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I am fine. I don't need for you to take me to lunch. I don't need for you to take me shopping. I don't need for you to call me. As a matter of fact, I'm changing our phone number because I'm sick of you calling me. I don't want anybody to call me. But within a week's time, 
I was the angriest person around. I was so angry, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't talk to my wife. I didn't talk to my children. I just acted as though I didn't feel well. But it came to be that I later learned from being with people such as all of you here that I could learn. I could learn how to do all the things that all of you do. And when I went to one of my patients' classroom here at Holmes Middle School, I saw how he was teaching his blind students how to play the guitar, how to cook, how to sew, how to do electronics, how to go fishing. These blind kids who were 11, 12, and 13 could do things that I couldn't do. And he said, hey, Dr. Bill, what are you doing Saturday? I said, I'm not doing anything. He said, okay, I'm coming over. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. I'm going to teach you how to do everything that we have here in this class. And after Mr. Christian taught me that, it really opened my mind. It made me realize that even though that I cannot see very well, I could do everything. I learned to use the low vision aids, the assistive technology. I learned to use everything, and I became very, very productive. But even at that same time, as I was more and more productive, and I was asked to work, I was asked to be an expert witness, I was working for different hospitals, my vision continued to worsen. But even though my vision continued to worsen, it did not bother me. And the reason for that was because I knew, even if I have my eyes closed, I could do everything. I could do everything except for drive a car legally. My friends would take me to drive their new cars, and I drove illegally, but I could drive illegally. <laughs> so all in all, remember this. Our eyes are very important to us, but they are really only a very, very small part of life. I could be here today from the invitation from Raquel Desipeda, and I hope that this lecture helps you. But I have learned that because of everything I've learned from other people with low vision and the teachers and the doctors, that I could come here and share what I have learned. And I could tell you how wonderful life is. I could go and have pizza for dinner tonight. I could go and have a margarita. I could go and watch a movie. I could do everything that I want to do because... My blindness doesn't stop me. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Bill. You know, I just wanted to share, um, Dr. Bill is one of those people that I can say who had helped me a lot uh, develop into who I am now. Since I met Dr. Bill, he and I have worked in in various organizations and various events. And I can say that he's one of those people that pushes me and encourages me to be the best person I can be. And he even encouraged me to be the MC today, which I don't normally do. <laughs> so here I am going. <laughs> and here I am going very nervous about it, but hopefully I get through this. 
<laughs> anyway, our next speaker is um, Sharon Watson. She is a clinical social worker. Um, she works as the um, psycholo- I mean, psych- psychiatric clinical therapist from the uh, Los Angeles Department of Mental Health, and she's going to talk. She wants to talk about coping with the def- depression, which open often comes along with um, vision loss. So, Sharon. I'm very happy to be a part of this program today in um, our seminar on coping with vision loss. I'm going to talk about coping with depression that sometimes goes along with vision loss. Um, I just wanted to say a little bit about my personal story. I did experience depression when I became blind. Um, I was 20 years old, and I was pregnant with my child, and it was very frightening, as you can imagine. I was really scared, and I was depressed, but I did not know what depression was. Um, I hope that this talk can shed some light on what depression is and tell you about a few things that can be done about it. Okay, so here goes. (laughs) From a very young age, we're told stories about the little engine that could. You can do anything if you put your mind to it, right? Well, maybe. There are some things that we can change and other things that we cannot change. There are things you can do to lessen suffering and improve your quality of life. Sometimes this means following a program to change something about yourself. Oftentimes, it means learning how to accept or even value something about yourself and your world that you simply cannot change. The something that I'm talking about right now is vision loss. I'd like to talk about coping with depression, which often accompanies vision loss. So, what is depression? On one end, we have a medical disorder, a serious chemical imbalance, and on the lower end, we have everyday sadness. Many of us have been somewhere on that continuum. Oftentimes, this happens after we've experienced a loss of some sort. These losses might include a physical problem, such as vision loss, and perceived life changes, or perhaps something like experiencing grief due to the loss of a loved one. Many times, the sadness and depression are considered normal and non-psychiatric, even though it might be helpful to speak with a professional at this time. Studies show that one in four of us, or 25% of us, will have a diagnosable mental illness at some point in our lives. If one goes beyond the level of everyday sadness or beyond the level of what might be expected with anticipatory grief, one might experience what is called a full-blown major depressive episode. In a major depressive episode, an individual has a depressed mood for most of the day, nearly every day, and or a loss of interest in their normal everyday activities for a period of at least two weeks or longer. 
The individual must have a total of five symptoms from a list of nine hallmark symptoms of depression. There has to be significant impairment or distress. This can be at work, at home, or both. The nine hallmark symptoms of a major depressive episode are a sad or low mood, an irritable mood, anhedonia. This is where an individual is unable to enjoy things that they normally enjoy. Changes in appetite or weight. This can go in either direction. You can have increase in weight or decrease. The same is true for sleep. You can have hypersomnia or insomnia, a difficulty sleeping. Poor concentration, memory loss, fatigue, low energy, feelings of worthlessness, hopelessness, guilt, and sometimes suicidal ideations. This might be someone becoming convinced that the world would be a better place if they weren't in it. Statistics show that major depressive disorder affects around 15 million adults. Furthermore, this is about 7% of the population who are 18 years or older. Major depressive disorder is the leading cause of disability in the United States for ages 15 to 44 years. The risk of suicide related to depression is of great concern. In the United States, suicide is the eighth leading cause of death, accounting for about 32,000 deaths per year. So, what is the prognosis or outlook? A major depressive episode usually remits within 12 to 24 months, even if left untreated. If you have experienced one episode, however, you have about a 50% chance of having a second episode. If you've had two episodes, you have about a 70% chance of having a third. If you have had three episodes of major depression, you have a 90% chance of having a fourth episode. It's almost as if the more episodes you experience, the more likely you are to experience the next episode. So how do we treat depression? The good news is there are quite a few treatments which are effective. I'd like to briefly discuss cognitive behavioral therapy, an evidence-based practice. This means that studies show that depressive symptoms have been alleviated through this treatment. What is CBT? CBT is a form of psychotherapy. It was originally designed to treat depression. It's now used to treat a number of mental illnesses. It works to solve current problems and to change unhelpful thinking and behavior. It helps to understand the thoughts and feelings that influence behaviors. Dr. Aaron T. Beck brought us CBT. The CBT triangle depicts thoughts, emotions, and behaviors as its three corners. The thoughts are thoughts about the self, thoughts about others, and thoughts about the world. For the depressed individual, these thoughts are quite pessimistic and quite negative. These negative thoughts lead to feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, anhedonia, feeling overwhelmed, worthlessness, and sadness. 
these emotions lead to behaviors of lethargy, isolation, hypersomnia and insomnia, appetite changes, and sometimes suicidal ideations. With depression, negative thoughts lead to destructive emotions. When an individual becomes depressed, there is a direct link between their thoughts, destructive emotions, and behavior. In short, when you have negative thoughts, your mood or emotions become destructive to your behavior. The depressed person does not achieve what he or she might if they were to see the glass half full or situations in a positive light. These depressed individuals tend to become behaviorally inactive. So, what are the basics of cognitive behavioral therapy? CBT is focused on the present. Where are you now? How are you feeling now? What's happening in your life right now? Again, cognitive behavioral therapy is about cognitions and behaviors. Cognitions are all of the mental activities that we have, thoughts, beliefs, values, priorities, images, and memories. Behaviors are things that you do at work or at home. They can be social or you might do them alone. In Dr. Beck's CBT triangle, all of the corners of the triangle are connected. It depicts his belief where thoughts are linked to feelings or emotions, which are linked to behaviors. Beck believes that the way you think affects your feelings or emotions and the behavioral choices that you make. If we change our negative thoughts, we change our depressed emotions. If we change our emotions, moreover, we increase positive behaviors. In summary, the most important thing to remember is to be aware of excessive negative thoughts. Try to see things in a positive light. This might be something as simple as enjoying a conversation with a friend, having a good meal, or listening to a favorite song on the radio. As I mentioned in the beginning, there are some things in life that we just cannot change, such as our vision loss. What we can do, however, is change the way we see vision loss, not with our eyes, but with our positive thoughts and an attitude which says, I think I can. Just like that little, I think I can. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Um, let me introduce first to you our narrator for today, Sheila Biglangawa Castro. Sheila is a, a former operations manager and owner with her husband and two other business partners of the massage, massage company in Brentwood. Um, she is a full-time housewife and mom to four kids, and uh, she still does part-time massage therapy. Let me introduce myself. Thank you, Raquel, for that little introduction. My name is Sheila, and um, I lost my sight due to a car accident. The trauma and impact of the car accident damaged both of my eyes. So from seeing to not seeing, from a 2020 vision to zero, 
I could pretty much say I am totally blind. But that didn't stop me. Um, I, um, I learned to maneuver myself. And thank you for the f- full support of my family, especially my husband, my children who are here, and my mom. And my, my second mom, my auntie, she's also here. Thank you for their full support. And of course, with God's guidance and protection, I was able to maneuver myself. I learned orientation and mobility by using the cane. I also learned how to read Braille and write Braille. Thank you for the Braille Institute and, of course, the Department of Rehab, Mr. Casey Cook. So, well, blindness is not a hindrance. Um, Coping with visual loss is not easy. It is a challenge. But for me, this challenge is exciting, fun, and, yep, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I would suggest for everyone to listen to all the guest speakers today and learn more on how to cope up with visual loss. And if they can do it, you guys can do it too. And as, and as, as people say to the, to the women, you go girl. <laughs> and to the guys, you can do it bro. <laughs> Nothing can stop you. All right. Thank you very much guys. Um, okay, so our next guest speaker is um, Robert Steichel. Yeah. He is the, um, Robert is an assistive technology trainer for the blind and the visually impaired, and he is uh, um, the second vice president of the um, state affiliate of the National Federation of the Thank Blind of California, and um, he is also the president of our local chapter. So here you go, Robert. Okay, very good. I use this one? Okay. The star of one of our later axes is needed to, to find a place to lay down. So. <laughs> so thank you, Raquel. I didn't realize I was so soon in the lineup. Um, <clears throat> so, wow. Um, yeah, I think I can. I think I can. So, <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, <clears throat> I, um, as you, you know a little bit about me, but probably a lot of you don't know that um, I was born with a syndrome. It's called Lawrence Bardell Bidet Syndrome. <clears throat> and through that, um, I. Was I was diagnosed later on with um, retinitis pigmentosa, which is what caused my blindness. And I also am starting to lose my hearing, which is prevalent in the LMBBS. So <clears throat> just wanted to add a few more things about me that you probably didn't know. And besides that, um, I am a very successful person in working two jobs and volunteering with the National Federation of the Blind of California. So I stay busy. I was asked to talk to you today about um, bullies and bullying. So 
<clears throat> what I wanted to do was to tell you about my experiences as I grew up because bullying, there's several different parts of bullying. There's people who are bullies and they pick on others just because they can. There's people who do things, they cause trouble to others. And so there's so many different ways that people can be bullies and <clears throat> it's just because they feel they're stronger and have more power over people. And, and that's basically what a bully is. So I thought if I talk to you a little bit about my growing up, uh, because I didn't, or I wasn't born blind, um, it would help you understand a little bit about what can happen to people and and to know that um, you have a voice and you should be able to use it and you should use it. And for those of you who are losing your vision and or people who, those of you in the audience who know of someone who's losing their sight, <clears throat> know that if you see these kinds of things happen, to let them know that they shouldn't accept it and that they should um, find someone to help them to let people know that it's, that it's not okay. <clears throat> when I was growing up, um, as I said, I wasn't born blind. I was born with 20-20 vision and actually didn't start losing my sight until I was 11 years old. <clears throat> and actually... I went with my parents on a vacation trip and actually happened to go into the restroom. And when I came out, I walked up to the wrong family thinking they were my parents. <clears throat> that was the start of my uh, losing my sight due to the retinitis pigmentosa. Um, at that time, my parents started, when we got home, started looking for uh, doctors to find, to see what the problem was with me. Um, you know, why, why is he walking up to people that um, are not the right family? Why is he stumbling over things? And why is he um, <clears throat> not doing all the chores properly at home? And so they just thought I was being clumsy, um, thought that I was um, just not wanting to do it because I didn't feel like it, when really it boiled down to the fact that I couldn't see things. Um, for instance, my chores at home were to pick up the leaves in the front yard. <clears throat> on the patio. Well, I couldn't see all the leaves because they blended in with the concrete. So I thought I picked them all up when they were still there. And again, like I said, I walked up to people that I did I thought were my parents and they really weren't. It's because there were times when I could see just fine and then there would be times when I couldn't see things. <clears throat> and and that's uh, RP at its early stage is the fact that you can you might see the steps in front of you, and by the time you get to them, they're gone um, because they're shadows, and you just don't see them anymore. <clears throat> so those were the things that I experienced. Um, I started out um, actually when I was in fourth and fifth grade. Uh, I was put into a private school because they were just starting busing. My parents didn't want me to to go across town um, on a bus every day. So they put me into private school. We had a school that was just down the street from my house. <clears throat> and so they put me in there from grades 4 through uh, 12th. I think we had about 200 kids total in the school. So it was a very small school. And <clears throat> at that, around the middle uh, junior high school age, um, I was really starting to lose my sight. But for me, I really couldn't tell a lot. So because I couldn't see things on the chalkboard, I couldn't see things on the textbooks, I just thought everybody saw the same thing. 
I, I didn't know that I couldn't see and that there was a problem. <clears throat> but all the kids that were going to school with me, they, they could tell, tell that um, I had a problem. And, you know, kids sometimes can be brutal. And so I had to put my face up really close to my locker combination so I could open my locker. Um, and I had kids that would, they would watch from behind and they would see what the combination is. And then they would go later and they would put, like, handballs in my locker. They put rocks and sticks and different things in there just to make me upset because they knew that it would. Um, <clears throat> they would watch for me coming by and they would stick their foot out and they would trip me. Um, and they thought they were just being funny when really they were, they were causing, they were being a bully and they were doing things to, um, to make me angry just because they knew it would. So you can imagine I got into a lot of fights. <laughs> so if there's any kids in the room, close your ears. <clears throat> One day I got into a fight with another person in the classroom during the class, and a teacher tried to break up our fight, and I threw him through a window. <laughs> you could you could imagine I was suspended. <clears throat> but um yeah, don't mess with me because I get angry. You know? <laughs> but really, I mean I shouldn't have had to go through this um because but because I was losing my sight and kids and other kids thought it was funny to pick on me, um I had to experience the fact that there's these bullies and, and people that just like to do things out of spite. And <clears throat> so at one point, my parents knew that I was getting into a lot of um, trouble at school, and they knew that um, people were picking on me, and they thought, well, you know, they had heard that public school would be a lot better because of um, they would have the, the textbooks that I could use in large print, and I would be able to... Um, to get assistance where I wasn't getting it in the private school. So they moved me to a public school. Um, and actually, for anyone who knows in the Valley, Birmingham High School is where I went. Um, and it was a much larger school than I was used to. It was like 3,000 people instead of 200. <laughs> so you can imagine um, there's even more people there to to pick on um, other kids that have have visual problems, have hearing problems, um, that type of thing. They, they just sometimes they just can't help themselves. They um, they just have to do it because they know they can. And so I went through school, um, and I was starting to lose even more sight at that time. But I didn't use a cane, and I was I was being taught how to use a cane, but I didn't want to use it when I wasn't on a mobility lesson. Because if I did, then the other kids in the school would see me, wouldn't see me as being a cool person. And it was during the time that I was, you know, 14, 15, 16. And during those days, you're looking, you want to, you know, pick up on some girls. And, <laughs> and, um, and so I felt that if I used the cane all the time, girls are going to see me as being weird and I'm never going to find a girlfriend. So, so I didn't use my cane, and guess what happened? I would fall off steps because 
I would, I would be walking across campus, and I could see them, but when I got to them, they were gone. Um, again, because of the shadows and the whatever was um, the sun, uh, it just sometimes you lose things and you can't see them. And I would fall off the steps or I would run into something. And I finally decided that this just wasn't, I was looking more weird without the cane than I would with it. <clears throat> so I started using my cane constantly. And when I got out of high school, I went and um, made sure that the skills that I had were even better um, than what I had learned in high school. Um, learned Braille because they wouldn't teach it to me in high school. And really honed my skills. And of course got a guide dog <laughs> and um <clears throat> and have had one ever since and so what i wanted to share with you today is that yes there are people out there that are cruel they can be they can really be um, big bullies and that you're always going to come across that in life but know that there's people out there know that there's um uh, you know there's a circle of people you can you can come across that if you're being bullied that you should go and talk to someone let them know that that's not right and that you have a voice and <clears throat> and really uh, come to grips with your vision loss um, realize that it's okay to be blind it's okay if you have if you have low vision but you need to get the skills and you need a voice that says you're not going to let people push you around and and if you get your skills and you learn how to, to deal with things that come up on an everyday basis, then you too can live the life like I live it and and be a successful blind person. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Robert. Um, I just wanted to mention that, you know, um, Robert is also one of those person that I am thankful to because um, without his trust, well, at least I believe he trusted me. <laughs> um, he trusted me to lead some of our um, committees in our chapter, and, and without that trust, I probably would have uh, not discovered and realized the skills I have developed in uh, managing and organizing events and seminars like this. So thank you, Robert. So our next guest speaker is um, Crystal Reddick. Um, she is currently our secretary at the chapter, a position I also held <laughs> for a number of years. And uh, Crystal is currently a student at the California State University Fullerton, and um, she's pursuing a career in psychology. And her passion is to help others, like many of us here, and um, she plans to do that through counseling, advocating, and conducting research. Sorry, I'm trying to get my companion to lay down. <laughs> okay, so good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I will be speaking to you all about the wonderful world of childhood, which we know could be difficult, especially when we become adolescents. So I'll speak to you since I grew up as a blind child. I know all the joys and the 
horrible times. So I was born blind, but my parents never knew until I was two years old because I had some vision, which um, I was able to play and do everything else, like all young children. So they just noticed that, like, in a lot of things I was hesitant or um, I was just scared. So um, they took me to the doctor, and I was um, diagnosed with Leber's congenital amaurosis. And um, so at that point, my parents were very scared. They didn't know what to do. So, But they decided that they were just going to push forward and treat me like just any other child. But once I began school, that's where all the troubles began because just we just realized how society saw blindness and like before we didn't realize it because in my family I was accepted it was just I was like any other child but once I went to school like that's where the limits were placed on me and based like on the students and the administrators and teachers and my parents they had these high expectations for me but the administrators they wanted to limit me. So, for example, when I started first grade, the professor's like, she asked my mom, what is she going to do all day? She, did you bring, like, coloring books for her? <laughs> so, um, so right away, my mom went to speak to the principal, and, like, she told her, I want her out of that class, and I want her to get the same education as all the other children are going to receive. So I had to transition to another class, um, and I had to, just throughout grade school, I experienced things um, such as professors not, not professors, sorry, teachers not being <laughs> accommodating, and like they just didn't know how to deal with a blind child. So I know like many um, children face this today that are blind. They are not given um, the ability to learn Braille. Or if they are, they're not given enough instruction where so they may see someone to work with them once a week, which is not enough time to get the um, tools you need to learn Braille because it's there's a lot to learn, and you're not going to keep up with your classmates at that rate. So... Getting the proper help begins, I believe, is very crucial with an IEP. So for those of you who don't know, an IEP is an individualized education program, which is where like, it's a written statement, and it's also it's a meeting that's held every year for students. And in this written statement, you have the goals for the student and what they should accomplished throughout that year. And the plan is put together by parents and administrators and teachers or whoever works with that student, whether it's um, TBI, so which is the teacher of the visually impaired, or mobility instructors. And they organize this plan to make sure that the student um, accomplishes those goals throughout the year, so it may be, um, so 
if a student is learning grade one in Braille, so for that year, it would be to perhaps finish learning grade one and move on to grade two. Or in mobility, it may be if they're learning how to cross the street, maybe they only know how to cross at a, at a stop sign. So you may want to transition them to crossing at a major intersection. So those are some examples. And so an IEP really helped me get through, especially high school. That was where it was very important because in high school, you're trying to learn how to transition from being in high school and going to college. And high school, I believe, was very difficult for me just because, like, they all would always tell me, like, you're too advanced for us because I was an honor student, so not very many things were available, like, such as textbooks. Like, they wanted me to be in the regular level classes, and I said no, but they insisted because it would be easier for them. And that's a lot of things that, that's the main issue I believe that we as blind students face is that administrators want to do what's best for them because it's easier. So they didn't want to provide the textbooks um, in an alternate format for me because they said it would be too expensive or it would take too long. So um, so my parents fought for it, and eventually we were able um, to get the textbooks I needed. So I did um, honors and AP classes all my four years. But it was a struggle just because when school began, I didn't have those textbooks. Um, so I would have to have a reader, which it, didn't, it wouldn't be necessary if they would have just done what was needed in the first place instead of trying to convince me that just regular level classes were better for me. Um, but with the IEP, I was able to have these accommodations written in my plan, so there was no choice but to get them done. And... Um, also, with the IEP, I was able to get like, extra um, accommodations, such as having AP exams and SATs in Braille instead of because at first they wanted me to have a reader, and I was not going to have that. So there's just all this stuff can be difficult, especially if someone's dealing with low vision, especially if you've never been blind. For example, there was a student that was um, attending high school with me, and she was my friend, and it was a big coincidence because she also went blind, but I knew her when she was sighted. And um, so we were freshmen, and during our freshman year, she started losing her vision, but she did not understand why. Like, the doctors couldn't identify what the problem was. Um, so I don't recall what her eye condition, um, what, what the diagnosis was, but she had to make a transition, so she had to learn Braille. She had to learn all the things that I had learned, but I, I realized that it was a challenge for her because she was learning the curriculum, but also learning the skills she needed now as a 
blind individual and I realized that it was a much different experience what I what I had to go through because I did it throughout several years and she had to learn several things just in a course of a month and she she accomplished it very well but of course it was a struggle for her dealing with students who didn't understand how all of a sudden she didn't have vision and how one day she went from reading her textbooks to needing help so it's just if you come across anyone who's a student and they're in grade school it's it's a challenge, but they will get the skills they need to push forward. And I'm thankful for all the skills I gained throughout my grade school because now that's learned, let me be on the journey I am now of higher education. And someday I pr- plan to pursue my PhD. So um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to a journey and For those of you who know anyone who's a student, just tell them not to give up and keep pushing forward, and they'll make it through. Thank you. Our next guest speaker is someone, again, that I am very thankful to because he's one of those also that pushes me to my limits. (laughs) Um, Actually, when I say pushing me to my limits, I I don't mean it uh, in a bad way, but... Um, <laughs> no, what I, what I mean is he, he's one of those persons that also, you know, encouraged me um, to be the best person I can be. And um, he's actually the reason why I am involved with Hearts for Sight Foundation. When he told me about his ideas and vision, vision for the organization, um, I felt very... I, was, I got so excited right away, and I said, oh, yes, I mean, you know, I will work with you on that. And so um, so here we are <laughs> working on, on that organization right now. But um, I also want to share with you that I admire this young man's um, resiliency, determination, and focus. I say that because I have not met... I mean, it's, it's very rare nowadays that I would meet a young man who is um, focused, who has a vision of what he wants to do in life, where he wants to be. Even though he grew up in foster care for pretty much um, all his life, um, she had told himself that, you know, he will, he will be somebody someday. And um, so... That's, uh, I think that's a good quality. And, um, you know, with um, coping with vision loss, we all have to develop that resiliency as well. Um, You know, we have to be strong. We have to learn to do the alternative ways of doing things. So um, our guest speaker is Joseph Burton. Joseph is um, currently the program ambassador of the foster care program at Palomar College, and he's also the president of Hearts for Sight Foundation. I might not have to say much. Raquel did a pretty good job. (laughs) All right. Well, hello, everybody. 
got a couple notes here. So, uh, you know, I was 13 years old. Um, like Raquel mentioned, I was living in foster care. And at that time, I actually made a crucial decision in my life that uh, I wanted to get and actually wanted to graduate high school. You know, statistics show kids that are in foster care tend not to have the best success with education. And certainly me at 13, I made a decision, um, you know, that I wanted to graduate high school on time. Not only did I want to graduate high school on time, but I wanted to get out of special education. That was a special education my whole entire life. And I'm very familiar with IEP meetings. So that's something that I, you know, I've had to face throughout my whole entire youth um, with school. Nevertheless, even at 13, I've always believed that education is imperative for your future success. You know, if you want to raise your economic status, education is that key component to moving forward in life. And that's something I've always believed in. And when I was 16 years old, I actually got diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. And at that time, I didn't realize, you know, how rare it was. At least that's what I was told. One out of every 6,000 people had this disease. And so for me, I thought I was just a little, you know, fish in the big pond, I guess, of other fish that could see better than me. <laughs> so um, at age, by the age 20, my doctor told me that I would be blind. And so it kind of put things into perspective. Not only was I living in foster care my whole entire life, but now I had to face the challenges of potentially going blind. And uh, 18, I still understood how important school was for me. And it was still challenging. I ended up, I ended up going to college and uh, didn't really express myself well as somebody who was visually challenged. I didn't let people know much about my disease. I didn't want people to think of me any differently. You know, I've always had a tremendous amount of friends, a tremendous amount of support. And I just didn't want to tell them, like, hey, guys, I'm going, I'm going blind, you know. And uh, it was something that was really troublesome to deal with and on top of being in foster care, which is something that I was, you know, created a lot of depression. 18 years old, I went to the college, or I'm actually attending now, Palomar, and I did not have the greatest success. I was a very, very poor student. It was really tough for me to keep up with college academia. I found myself falling behind to the point where I just told myself, why do I just, why am I continuing to go? You know, I just I was not having any success whatsoever. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I was about, say, 24, when my disease really started putting a toll on my, on, my, on my body. And I started really noticing a lot of changes with my vision. And uh, I got connected with the Braille Institute down in San Diego. And in San Diego, I really found people that kind of understood where I was coming from, you know, other people who were visually impaired at different stages of their lives. And it really allowed me to kind of gain some perspective as to what my life could possibly be, regardless of the fact if I do go blind, right? So I got connected with a National Federation of the Blind down in San Diego, and uh, they connected me with an organization called Department of Rehab. I'm sure many of us here have known about Department of Rehab, but uh, Department of Rehab allowed me to 
go to school knowing that I have these visual impairments and provide me with the accommodations necessary for me to be successful in college. Like I said, education is imperative to your future success. And so me being 24, I understood, okay, if I'm going to be visually impaired for the rest of my life or potentially go blind matter, I need to become educated so I can raise the chances of me still being able to be independent. I've been living on my own since I was 18. As soon as I uh, got out of foster care, I was on my own. And at age 24, I was telling myself, I was like, man, what am I going to do if I go blind? How am I going to provide for myself? How am I going to take care of myself? Let alone, how am I going to provide for my own family? You know? And so I decided to go back to school. Department of Rehab bridged that gap for me to get the resources that I needed. And now I'm here at Palomar College as a returning student. And uh, I'm having a lot more success. You know, I'm actually going to school for organizational psychology. And uh, it's allowing me to have a little bit more confidence, have a little bit more understanding of what the possibilities are for my future, knowing that I'm in control, that I'm in that driver's seat controlling this car, figuratively, by the way. <laughs> figuratively. So, but the first thing that I did when I um, returned to Palomar was that I got to a, uh, I went to a, um, program is called the uh, Disabilities Resource Center. And every institution on campus or college institution is going to have a Disabilities Resource Center. For some of us that are in college, the resources available to us now are so much better than what they used to be. Some of us that have gone to college, I'm sure Joe and uh, Sharon, these resources weren't available to us. Screen readers, CCTVs, magnifiers, you know, all those things weren't available 10, 15 years ago. And so now that they're here, I'm having so much more success with my uh, college experience. So some of the things that Disabilities Resource Center could provide you, and some of the things that I utilize, for example, one of them is extra time on taking tests. Now, could you imagine being visually impaired and having to take the same test at the same time as the other students in class, rather be in class while other students are walking around finishing 10, 15, sometimes 30 minutes earlier than you are. Imagine how much of a distraction that is when you're trying to focus on your material and people are walking around talking. And so that was the first thing that I felt that was the most useful tool for me to have that extra, what they would call double time on the test. So that's something that was extremely beneficial for my success. Another element that I uh, utilize is having a note taker. Now imagine somebody writing your notes for you. That's pretty nice, it's always good. And so I now have what is called a double-sided carbon copied paper. And so I always pick somebody, usually a nice little girl who has pretty girl handwriting so I can see it nice. And I, I always, ask one of these people, one of these students, to take my notes. And what's great about them taking the notes is that the school pays the student $50 to take notes that they're already going to be taking notes for, you know? So that's nice. They write their notes on the, on, from the board, 
they give me the white uh, copy, and they take the carbon copy. So they're not having to do, you know, too much work, and they get paid, which is great. Uh, another useful tool that I use, um, I get to utilize a private room, a private setting. Like I said, it's very distracting to have students walking up and down, you know, the class when you're trying to take a test or leaving early. It's just quite intimidating. So every time I have a test, and usually if you have a good teacher, you're going to have a syllabus. It's going to tell you every single test or exam or assignments that you're going to have. And that's somebody who is visually challenged. You have the opportunity with the DRC programs on campus to utilize one of their rooms. You know, if you need a CCTV, if you need a magnifier, if you need any tools necessary, JAWS, Zoom text, anything, this institution is going to have that um, program or software or whatever technology regularly available to you. And so for somebody like myself who's visually challenged, to have that at my disposal, it's only promoting a better success rate for me in college. But of course, you've got to utilize it. And that's something that I certainly have done with my life. Um, well, I'm going a little ahead of myself. So, you know, without these services, it'd be really challenging to understand what kind of life would I have. It's, like I said, education is very key to any success that you're going to have with your future. And so for individuals out there that are considering attending college, the first thing that you're going to want to do is find that Disabilities Resource Center connect to the Department of Rehab, set yourself up with an ed plan so you can become self-sufficient. I also wanted to mention, if the college experience is too overwhelming, you know, it's not like high school or a private school where there's only a couple hundred students. You're talking thousands of students on campus. And sometimes it might be a little overwhelming, right? There's opportunities like online classes, University of Phoenix. One of my best friends right here, Raquel Desapita, just graduated from University of Phoenix with a bachelor's degree in human resources and management. Wow. And probably I would say 90% of the classes that Raquel took, she was able to do it out of the comfort of her own home, utilizing the software that Department of Rehab, correct me if I'm wrong, provided for her. Yes. So if you want to continue further in your education, knowing that it's imperative for your success and your future, don't let intimidation or fear set you back. Because certainly like people like Raquel, people like Dr. Bill, Joe Toole, Sharon Watson, Christina, they all understand how important education is. And look where they're all at right now. And so I just want to encourage everybody who's considering going back to school or are in school, just keep pushing forward. Bridge those gaps to those resources that will allow you to further your education. Because I'll mention it again. It's so important for our future, especially for us who are visually impaired. Just being able to have that confidence, ability, capabilities, that's really what is going to promote independence. And so that's, I'm sure it's about by time, so. But I just want to say thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Raquel.
Okay, our next guest speaker, we call him our um, tech guru. Julian Vargas is a mobile assistive technology specialist, and um, he trains uh, visually impaired and blind people to use assistive technology. And um, Julian also does presentations and trainings. <laughs> yes, and so so he had done um, presentations at Best in Tech, uh, CCLVI, ACB National Convention. He also facilitates a, um, a, t- a tech talk group, and um, he is also um, a co-host of um, uh, with uh, Dr. Bill at SLA talking about all about smartphones. So here we go. Yeah. That one, okay. I got to bend way down here. You should see what they call me when I don't tell them something they want to hear. <laughs> anyway, um, as uh, Raquel mentioned, I'm um, a uh, mobile assistive technology specialist. I believe in empowering uh, those of us that are visually impaired or blind uh, with the uh, capabilities afforded by today's mobile technology. I was born with a uh, condition uh, that uh, has been mentioned here already today, despite it being rare. It's the same condition that uh, Crystal has, uh, Leber's congenital amaurosis, known as LCA. It's a condition that is known to be degenerative, and if anybody wants to know more about this rare but interesting condition, just uh, go to Google and type in the uh, this RPE65, and you'll learn everything and then some <laughs> about it. So for me, uh, throughout most of my life, the, the main component of this was uh, night blindness, where I couldn't see at night or where it was dark. Uh, daylight was absolutely my friend. And as a child, uh, my vision was better. I used to be able to do all kinds of fun stuff, like uh, not use a cane in the daylight. I used to be able to uh, ride a bike, play sports, all kinds of really fun things. And uh, growing up in New York, get into trouble here and there, too. (laughs) Um, In school, I was mostly mainstreamed. So I uh, could certainly identify with a lot of what was talked about here earlier with regard to the challenges and the struggles that you go through, uh, being sort of the oddball. <laughs> um, and back then, you know, it's hard to accept the, the situation. I didn't want to use a cane either. I didn't want to be labeled. And somehow I was okay with the things that people said about me when they saw me bumping into things and walls or whatever. Now when I think back on it, it's like, sheesh, a cane would have been easier, would have explained everything. <laughs> Unfortunately, even though my condition was known to be degenerative, they didn't see fit to teach people like me Braille. And I have to say that if there's any teachers out there, anybody who has the ear of someone in the school district, any parents of of children that have any sort of visual impairment whatsoever, you got to teach Braille. It is absolutely necessary. uh, People like to say, oh, it's obsolete now. But, you know, Braille is literacy. And especially with conditions that are degenerative, it sure comes in handy later in life, and it's a lot harder to learn when you're older. Uh, When you're a child, your brain is a sponge, absorbs everything. So I can't say enough about the importance 
of making sure that uh, visually impaired children are taught Braille along with large print and everything else. So after I uh, graduated high school, uh, shortly thereafter, I decided that um, living at home was just not cutting it. <laughs> I wanted independence. I wanted to grow. And I knew that staying at home meant that uh, I was going to have everything done for me, taken care of, all that, which was great. But I knew there was more to life. So I decided to uh, move out of the house, but not just like down the street or anything like that. I moved all the way across the country. <laughs> Because that way I knew I'd be out of reach of my well-intentioned family. <laughs> and it was a sink or swim thing, you know. It's like uh, if I was going to make it, uh, I, I had to do it that way. So that's what I did, and uh, I've been here ever since. And I had a lot of fun learning about life on my own, learning how to uh, manage a home, cook, do all that stuff, travel uh, in a strange place where I didn't know a lot of people. But... Um, I, I I wouldn't trade it again. It, it was an awesome thing to do. Everything was great till about my mid-30s or so when I started to notice the degeneration taking place. And that was um, that was challenging because, um, you know, as much as you think you're prepared for something like that, it, you're not. <laughs> but I decided that, uh, like everything else in my life, I wasn't just going to take it sitting down. I was going to get proactive about it and start to uh, accept the reality of the situation and learn to make the best of it. So I started to uh, reach out to the blind community. I got involved with the NFB here in the San Fernando Valley. I sought out counseling and support groups, which I can't speak enough about. Um, Sharon talked about uh, CBT and uh, um, other therapy, and I, I can't say enough about the benefit of those things. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, therapy, the, the, you're crazy if you do that, but you're not. It's so helpful, and getting involved with support groups uh, to meet other people who are in your position or who have been there, who are further down the road and can give you uh, valuable uh, insight as to what's up ahead and support, you know, just so you know, you're not the only one. I also started to uh, learn to integrate blindness methods more into my life. Uh, I mean, I always had to a certain degree, but uh, you learn to realize that you have other skills. You, you have other senses that fill in the picture, so to speak, when the eyes can't do it as well anymore. Um, when it came to the computer, I uh, had been using ZoomText, and I had been told about... Uh, its competitor called Magic, made by Freedom Scientific. Uh, Freedom Scientific also makes Jaws, which is the leading uh, screen reader in the workplace. And I realized that uh, someday I was going to have to use Jaws, and I should put myself on the road of knowing some things. So I switched to Magic because the keystrokes were similar. So that when the day came, and it has, and now I'm a full-time Jaws user, it was a seamless transition. I also research other technology solutions. I, I used to be able to get away with a flashlight uh, in the store to read labels and things like that. Well, that was no longer working anymore, so I started learning about video magnifiers. And that was, that was a big thing for me because now I could still shop independently and see what was on the labels. And then one day I discovered accessible cell phones. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was, uh, as, uh, as, 
as we uh, hear a lot these days, that was huge. <laughs> that made a big difference in my life. You know, I, I started asking around about them because I, I had a cell phone, and I would find it annoying that uh, a call would come in, and I couldn't, I didn't know who was calling. I had to answer the phone just sort of uh, blindly, pardon the pun. <laughs> And I wanted a way of knowing who was calling. So that was what got me started on that path. And then I learned about these Nokia phones that you could put software on that uh, gave you the ability not just to hear who was calling, but to manage and customize all the features of the phone, including my contact list, including uh, getting into something that a lot of people were starting to get into, texting. And it was... It was uh, it was amazing, and I was having such a fun time with it. And then, of course, uh, like any excited person, you start telling all your friends about it. And then my friends all wanted to know, well, yeah, how do I do that? How do I get into that? So I started teaching my friends uh, how to get these phones and set them up and to be able to do what I was doing. And in the process of that, I realized that uh, I had stumbled on something. The power of having a little computer in your hand. I realized that this was no longer a, just a telephone for making and receiving calls. This was a computer. And it's really uh, shown itself to be true as we've gone on now to the modern age of smartphones, and everybody has them. Back then, most people were still using the, uh, the, the little flip phones, um, and they didn't think of it as much other than just the phone and a texting device. I realized, you know what? There's a lot of things you can do with this little computer, and I have it with me anyway. And in the process then, people, the word got around that I knew about these devices and was teaching people how to do it. And now I'm being asked to give presentations, training, and uh, lo and behold, here I am uh, doing this now as my profession. So there's, there's just, you know, it, all these things just help, helped me to cope with the ongoing vision loss. And it is still a process for me. I'm still in the midst of it. And as I get older, it's just, you know, I don't know if eventually it's going to be all dark or not. But I, if it is, I'm a lot better prepared for it now because I've learned to uh, avail myself of this technology. There are all kinds of things that I can do now independently. For example, GPS apps have made it possible for me to uh, access street signs. I can't read street signs anymore. I used to be able to. With a GPS app running as I walk in a new area, I now know the streets I'm on and what I'm approaching, and I, know, I don't have to struggle and have the anxiety of trying to read that street sign or hoping that somebody happens to walk by and can read it for me. I can travel more easily and independently now thanks to apps like Nextbus and the Rideshare apps. I have many travel options. For shopping now, I use barcode scanning apps and remote visual assistance apps, so uh, the video magnifier doesn't quite cut it as well anymore as it used to. So now I have, I've, I've learned to replace that with these apps. And, of course, uh, the ability to communicate with the world at large via email, via messaging, via social media is just tremendous because not only has it helped me to connect better with my friends and family, but also professionally it just uh, helps me to communicate with clients. And, of course, for entertainment, there's a video and streaming and other kinds of things. So the, the, the bottom line is that um, I don't know how I would have done this without the technology. I, I know I, I would have figured out a way, but 
boy, if there was ever a time to be low vision or blind, isn't this it? (laughs) So go out there, uh, use your technology, learn the uh, potential of it. And the beautiful thing is that now it's in the same devices that everybody else buys. We don't have to go out and buy add-ons. We don't have to have special customizations or things like that that used to require a lot of money. Now we can go to the Apple store like everybody else on the day that the phone goes out and stand in the crazy lines and (laughs) buy the same phone and be able to do what everybody else is doing. So that's how I cope with low vision, thanks to technology. As we keep on talking about technology, um, let's have Dr. Biltakeshta again come up and talk talk about low vision devices that are available right now in the market. Okay, thank you again for allowing all of us to be up here. And I, I really would like to recognize all the people who have volunteered to put this together. You know, this takes a lot of work, a lot of time. And they've all done a, a great job. So let's give them a round of applause. As I was listening to each of our speakers present today, you know, this is really an amazing, amazing group. Now, I have never personally met uh, Sharon Watson, but boy, she's an amazing speaker, amazing lecturer. But. <laughs> And when we, when we look at everybody who's on the panel here, every one of these individuals are successful. They are the presidents, the founders. They have developed new organizations to help people with low vision. They're going out there and they're doing presentations. I, I know that Joseph, he talked about the fact that he, he was in foster care. But I know that Joseph recently was hired and has a, a new job and is going to school. And he didn't recognize himself for that, but congratulations, Joseph. <laughs> you know, Robert Steigel and his wife have been so involved with the NFB chapter. And Robert does so much. He is one of our instructors that we have at the Center for the Partially Sighted. And he teaches people how to use the technology. And he's also working for the city of Los Angeles in the Parks and Recs Department. But his experience and guidance, you know, it means so much. So thank you, Robert. And Crystal, Crystal may not remember this, but I was her doctor when she was about two years old. Yeah, I remember. She was just the cutest thing ever, and as she got older, though, I, 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 no, 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 I'm not saying it that way. As she, as she got older, this is something really serious, she didn't mention this, but I felt really bad, because she had some of the most severe headaches. She was hospitalized many times because of her headaches. And we couldn't tell, are these headaches anything related to her eyes or what it is? And she fought through it. Crystal, I think you're the only child in the family, aren't you? Well, then I was when I was young, but no, I have a brother, he's 10 years younger. 
Okay. And if you were to, I don't know if your mom and dad here are here, but her parents were just so dedicated. And what she mentioned, and I want you to remember this, is that the way that she and her mom and her dad fought, fought at those IEP meetings is the reason that she will be going to get her Ph.D. So it's really, really impressive. Thank you, Crystal. You know, and Julian and Raquel, they were also both patients of ours at the Center for the Partially Sighted. And I remember talking to Julian a little bit. You know, I was one of our, you know, I was a chief of optometry. I was a head doctor at the Center for the Partially Sighted. So I thought, no, I'm going to teach this guy about this technology. <laughs> and as I started to talk to him, he knew so much more than me. I said, we need to hire this guy. We need to hire him. <laughs> And he is truly one of the world's best in terms of teaching people about all the mobile technology. Before I buy anything, I ask Julian, what do you think? <laughs> because Julian buys everything and tries it and compares and contrasts it. So you're always going to get an honest opinion from Julian. And with Raquel, it's the same sort of thing. She has all of this technology. She's able to do all of these things. And so, all in all, every one of these people are successful, and they have learned to accept their vision impairment, and they've analyzed themselves, and they've moved forward. So the last thing that I'm here to talk about today is to answer any questions that you may have about what is new in the field of low vision. As Julian was talking about, there are so many things that are available. Low vision doesn't mean that you're using a Sherlock Holmes magnifier, okay? But it could be that you're going to pull out your iPhone or your Android phone, and you're going to take a picture, and it's going to read everything for you. Or you're going to use it as a video magnifier. Or that you're going to use your cell phone, and it's going to tell you how to get from here to Frankie's Italian restaurant for dinner. I mean, everything is available to us. And we know, I know that we all know, but we know that it won't be long before all of us will be driving these self-driving cars. Yeah. That is going to be ready. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Who is that, Jorge? Okay. <laughs> Well, you come pick me up. <laughs> but one of the things, yes, one thing I just want to share with you, many of you have uh, probably seen it, many of you don't know about it, but this is, in my opinion, the most advanced piece of technology that we have for 2016. And these are video glasses. Now, I'm not talking about glasses that have wires and batteries and you wear it with a backpack and all these things. This is a pair of glasses, and they're sleek and they're cool. And what they have in there is they have a video camera that is so tiny. I believe that the whole system weighs about eight ounces. And with this, you have two organic LED screens and you could focus far, so if you're on vacation, you could say, hey, I think that's Crystal, isn't it? And you could zoom in, and you say, by golly, that is Crystal. If you want to read something, you look at what's in your hand, and you can read it. 
You could change the colors of the background and the text. So if you have Labor's congenital amaurosis or RP and you read things better with a dark background and white letters, you could change that. If you need more magnification, you could increase and you could decrease the magnification. Maybe you're tired and you want it to read it out loud. You don't want it to be such that you have to use your eyes. It will read those things aloud. And you don't even have to use your hands to control this. You could say increase magnification, decrease magnification, change the contrast, and it will do all of those things. And so this is a product that was designed by a gentleman many of you may know by the name of Mr. Mark Greggett. Mark Greggett was the Los Angeles representative for Enhanced Vision. And he said, these products that we have here at Enhanced Vision are fantastic. But we need something that people could just wear. That would be a lot better than all of these others. And so he developed the company called New Eyes and that's N-U-E-Y-E-S. And they're going to be releasing this product next week. So all of you will be very, very happy. This product, what I'm very impressed with, is the fact that it is approximately $9,000 more affordable than the other electronic video glasses that are out. This one is $5,999. It's very similar to the price of a regular video magnifier. So when this particular device is available, or if any of you do have questions with it, I'm going to give you my email, and you could email me, and my email address is Dr. Bill, that's D-R-B-I-L-L, okay, Dr. Bill Foundation at Gmail, Dr. Bill Foundation at Gmail. You can email me, and I'll get you the information. I'll get you in touch with Mark. But that is one of the things that is really very, very exciting. So at this time, if we have somebody who has a vision, or if you'd like to ask a question, if you want to just go ahead and shout out your name, and you could say your name and ask a question about what's new in technology, I'll be happy to answer that. Yes, the question is, do these new eyes glasses, can you watch TV? Yes. You could read a book. You could cut your fingernails. You could cut your toenails. You could go on vacation. You could watch TV. And also, they have just signed a contract with one of the largest companies of Internet providers. And that these particular shows and movies and concerts are all going to be streaming on this device with USB and also with other types of wireless connections. Yes, the question is, will this work for anybody who has vision? And with all the studies that we have done with it in the preliminary, it works with all people who have vision. Yeah, the question is, would these glasses, such as the new eyes glasses or other video magnifiers and other low vision aids, would they help a person who has damage to the optic nerve? And the question is actually, it depends on whether, do you have any vision at all? If you have vision at all, then these types of devices can work. The benefits of the new eyes glasses is that it provides more contrast more magnification and more color combinations than optical magnifiers. 
So we have seen people who could not benefit from the use of glasses and magnifiers, and with the new eyes, they were able to. So, yes, it definitely can. Another question. That's a very good question. Now, with RP, many people with RP don't have any peripheral vision. They only have central vision. So let's say that your central vision is very tiny, and you only have five degrees of central vision. Well, the new eyes glasses, video magnifiers, and other visual aids, they can improve the level of vision so that you can have a wider field of vision. It is because that these electronic devices can increase the brightness and the contrast of the image so that your retina could still see it. So it is possible that it can do that. In other situations, we also have other low vision devices at the center for the partially sighted. If you have RP and reduced peripheral vision, there are reverse telescopes. And these are telescopes that we put in backwards, and it will condense the peripheral vision to be in your central vision so you could see it. And this could help a lot of people who have difficulties with their walking and their mobility. One of the things that I want all of you to know is that, number one, if you are over the age of 16 and under 65, so from 18 to 65, you can apply to become a client of the Department of the Rehabilitation. And they will refer you to the Center for the Partially Sighted or another low vision agency where you can receive a low vision examination. You can receive an assistive technology evaluation. You can receive a mobile technology evaluation. And the devices that the doctors and the specialists recommend will often be paid for by the Department of Rehabilitation. If you're a veteran, the Veterans Administration now has programs where you can have a low vision examination, the assistive technology evaluation, and they too will pay for these types of devices for you. If you have Medi-Cal, if you're a child with Medi-Cal, 18 years or younger, you can come to the Center for the Partially Sighted and receive a low vision examination. And Medi-Cal will also pay for magnifiers and glasses for children 18 and younger. If you have Medi-Cal but you're older than 18, your examination will be paid for, but Medi-Cal has stopped paying for those particular types of glasses and magnifiers. If you have Medicare, Medicare will pay for that type of low vision examination, but they will not pay for those types of visual aids. So we are working very hard to try to raise funds to pay for these kinds of visual aids that you may need. Another thing is that agencies such as the Center for the Partially Sighted, we often have used equipment. So many times people may say that they can no longer see with their video magnifier. For example, when I lost all of my vision, I just donated everything I had, and the Center for the Partially Sighted was able to give it away, or they were able to sell it, depending on what the donor wanted. So you could contact me if you're looking for a video magnifier. We do have video magnifiers that are about $500, and the normal price is $3,000. So there's some very, very good deals on these different products. Is there another question out there? And how are we doing on time, Raquel? Is that about? 25. Pardon me? Are there, are there any other questions about? 
technology or other types of visual aids or sunglasses? What about sunglasses? Are sunglasses important? The answer to that is yes. We are finding with more and more studies that the blue wavelengths of light that come from the sun is very damaging to the retina, especially if you have RP or labors or if you've had cataract surgery. So there are special types of lenses now, and these types of glasses will filter out the blue light to protect your eyes. In the past, these glasses had to be orange, brown, or amber, but we now have lenses that could be very clear, and they will protect your eye from the blue light and the ultraviolet light. The question would then be as well, would Medi-Cal or Medicare, would they ever pay for these in certain situations? And the answer is yes. Medicare will pay for your first pair of glasses after cataract surgery. So we could request this particular type of lens material and it will protect your eyes. Any other questions out there? Okay, thank you very much. Okay, our um, last guest speaker for today, but certainly not the, le the least, um, is Charlotte Carroll. She's the president of the senior division of the National Federation of the Blind. Hello, I'm Charlotte Carroll. I'm the NFBC president of the senior division. I am the division that handles people ages 55 and older. Uh, following the lead of everyone else who spoke, I started going blind due to uveitis. May 1971, I was diagnosed with uveitis. I was a full-time employee for Internal Revenue Service. I was going to college at night. I had a husband, a three-month-old son, and a three-year-old son. So when I went in the office and he told me that I was going blind, I left assuming that he was a quack. <laughs> so I went over to, um, I saw two other doctors, and the fourth doctor told me that I would be blind within a year. Unfortunately, he had no bedside manner because I didn't know the difference between the varying degrees of blindness. When he said blindness, I thought complete. So I fell into a depression. But because I had a family, I couldn't afford to quit, so I, had, I kept working for two more years. And finally, I had to give it up because back... In 1973, we had handwritten uh, records. There was no computers back then. So I had to quit. I resigned, and I went on disability for three years, and then one day I was frustrated because everyone I knew was at work. So I called information and asked for a handicapped employment office, and they gave me the Department of Rehab. I went over there. The lady brought, escorted me into the room and introduced me to my counselor, but I noticed that she wouldn't look at me. And I didn't understand why. Then I finally figured out that she was totally blind. And it, it sounds weird, but finding out that she was totally blind just really, really made me feel good because I went in the office with my glass half empty, but after seeing her fully employed, I came out with my glass half full. I went through all the requirements, and I started working for Social Security as a service representative. I took care of you after you took got your check. And five 
uh, years later, I got promoted to claims rep. Then I took care of, I took your application to put you on the computer and get your check started. 23 years later, I retired with a total of 32 years and three months. So, so four years as a sighted employee and 28 as a blind employee. So then I hung around the house for a couple of years and I got bored again. <laughs> and I uh, became a fully licensed agent for Primerica. I learned quickly that no one wants to take financial information from a blind person. But I, had, I was happy because I had passed my security exams on the first try. I let my licenses expire after three years of frustration. So then I hung around the house and helped out whoever needed help. And then finally, bored again, I started volunteering for the Junior Blind, which is what I do now. I work in employment development. I do the assessment test for people who come to the Junior Blind to see what they know, what they need to learn. I participate in that part. I also participate in the customer service basic training class. That's for the people who want to learn how to be customer service reps on the phone. And uh, that's what I do. Two years ago this month, I found out about the NFB. It was amazing to me that I could have been diagnosed for blind in May 1971 and not find out about NFB until March 14. That was like 43 years. But so I lived a sighted life. And once I found NFB and found people who had the same problems I had, I became really interested in them, and I appreciated them. So I have worked myself into the organization. I'm the president of the senior division. I'm the first vice of my local chapter, the Pathfinders. I make sure that everyone on my roster is fully informed. Some of my uh, members do not use email, so I email the ones who do. And I print out a large, I make a large print of hard copy for those who don't have emails, and I print it out. And with that, my husband helps me with that. He makes sure that they're lined up correctly and get them in the envelope and get them to the mail, because I want everyone to be informed of everything that's going on. We're having a senior division seminar Thursday, May 12th in Montclair at the Hometown Buffet. We will be treating the blind and visually impaired guest only to a free lunch. Everyone else must pay their own way. <laughs> and um, we meet once a year at the state convention. It's usually a senior division breakfast. And there we get caught up on everything. And you pay your, do your dues, which is a whopping $5 a year. And um, we make sure, like I said, I just make sure everyone's informed. I get a lot, I'm on a lot of uh, listservs. That's the information list. So I get a lot of information. I forward it to them. I recently got the um, the senior division, the national senior division listserv, and I sent all of them the information on how to log in or call in. So that's my job. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to take this opportunity to uh, thank some people. 
Um, a lot of people had helped uh, make this uh, seminar successful. And uh, first, I want to thank the uh, Providence Sarsanum Medical Center for letting us use this facility for free. Of course, I want to thank I want to thank Sheila and um, her friend who created that video that you sh that you saw at the beginning of the seminar. And um, I also want to thank the Alpha Gamma Sigma, the students from Alpha Gamma Sigma or the Santa Monica College, I should say. I'm sorry, <laughs> Alpha Gamma Sigma Honorary Society who have been helping us, you know, up here on the stage and back there. Um, and also, um, I wanted to thank all of the guest speakers for today. Thank you very much, guys. So as we have learned today, there are really a lot of resources and in programs and services available that could help you with your journey with your coping with your vision loss. You are not really alone. You just need to find these information and resources. Go out, meet people, make friends with those people that could lead you to these resources. Let people help you. I know for me, one of the things that helped me adjust and helped me become stronger, I mean, are the, the people around me, the supportive family and friends that I have. If you are new to this, you may feel right now that no one understands you, but you know it is not true. There is a community of us out here. There are support groups available that you can join uh, like at the Center for the Partially Sighted, there, there are um, a couple of support groups there that you can join. Um, as you have heard, a lot of our speakers um, said today, there's the Department of Rehabilitation that could provide um, services to your needs to go to school, to go to work, get your technology. Um, and um, there are also organizations like the Braille Institute, the Junior Blind of America that provide programs and services. And if you are into um, recreation or physical activities or sports, like I do, there are a lot of groups out there. There's the, uh, the Achievers, the Disabled uh, Sports of Orange County and the Unwreckable. Um, they are a, a skiing club group. Um, I go skiing with them once a year. Well, actually, not just once a year, but every year uh, during the winter season. Um, I also belong to a fishing club. It's called Turner's, and, uh, Turner's Rod and Reels Club. They're very kind people. Um, we, you know, they also help us organize a fishing club. I mean, a fishing club, a fishing trip <laughs> every year. Um, there are also a paddling group if you are into outrigger paddling. There's the Macapo Aquatics uh, Project in Orange County and also Blind Start uh, Dragon Boat, Blind Start of America. Um, there, is, there are also um, blind cycling groups. If you are into tandem biking, here in Los Angeles, we have a blind 
recycling group, and I believe in Los and I mean in San Diego, there's the wine stokers. Um, if you are into white white water rafting, there's also a club called Environmental Traveling um, Companions or ETC. Um, there are there there is also a, a bowling league for the blind. Uh, it's the Lost. Take note: Lost is L O S D. Los Angeles Blind <laughs> Bowling League. And there is also uh, a group uh, that plays goalball, uh, the Organization for the Physically Impaired. And recently I also learned about this uh, Angel City Sports and, and uh, Tech Ezra. I think they're a new organization that would, um, you know, that do adoptive sports. Uh, I think in two weeks they have a track and field uh, training that we that uh, they want to add that you know that promote and say that you know blind people can participate. <clears throat> so in other words, do not let your blindness or low vision stop you from living the life you want. As we say at the National Federation of the Blind. Blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. Every day we raise the expectations of blind people because low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. Thank you very much.